Good morning. I'm Shamita Basu. And I'm Duarte Geraldino. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. But first, let's catch up with some of the day's top headlines. An explosion in Beirut claimed the lives of at least 100 people and injured more than 4,000. The Lebanese government says the blast originated from a warehouse storing explosive materials. The cause of the detonation is still unclear. Chris Kobach lost the Republican nomination for Senate in yesterday's Kansas primary election. In Missouri, 10-term congressional Democrat Lacey Clay Jr. was defeated by a progressive challenger, Cori Bush. And six people are dead after Tropical Storm Isaias tore through the East Coast on Tuesday. More than 3.7 million households lost electricity. You might be feeling cynical about how the election will go down in November. There have been disagreements over mail-in voting, cries of voter fraud coming from the highest levels of government. But 538 looked into all of the primary elections that have taken place in the past few months in almost 40 states. And it found, overall, the elections have actually been running pretty smoothly. Yeah, you know, what 538's analysis does is reassure a lot of us that elections can run smoothly even during a -a once-in-a-lifetime public health crisis like this pandemic. Mm -hmm. 538 found states were able to successfully run elections through either exclusively mail-in ballots or a combination of mail-in and in-person voting. And this is a key point. States that mailed ballots directly to voters saw the highest percentage of votes cast by mail. 538 also looked at voter turnout. Now, there were some problem states like New York, which had issues with prepaid envelopes. Two congressional races there were only just decided last night. Or Illinois, where there was a significant drop in turnout from 2016. 538 attributes that to there being long lines there and the timing of their primary. The country had just gone into lockdown, and a lot of people didn't have time to request absentee ballots. But for most other states, voter turnout wasn't really impacted. And in many states, it actually went up. Idaho, Iowa, Nebraska, New Mexico, and the Dakotas, they all expanded mail-in voting and saw an increase in turnout as a result. But hold on a second here, because 538 admits some people were likely disenfranchised because of the pandemic, though it's hard to say how many right now. But their data suggests mail-in voting was largely successful. The key is making sure people know about it and can access their forms on time. When it comes to the national response to the pandemic, there's one government institution that's managed to move quickly, to innovate, and to deliver. The Army Corps was here in our deepest and darkest hour of need, and cannot thank you enough for that. We'll never forget it. That's New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy. He's really capturing the feeling of a lot of local leaders. And the New Yorker is actually highlighting the success of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers during this crisis. And in particular, the man in charge, Todd Semonite. He's a 63-year-old three-star general, and he's described as the kind of guy who embodies the Corps' ethos of getting the job done. Yeah, in the first few months of the pandemic, Semonite led the effort to build emergency hospitals, first at the Javits Center. That's a sprawling convention hall in New York City, and later all over the country. And the Corps worked quickly with whatever tools they could get their hands on. At one point, they figured out how to convert these large storage containers into negative pressure hospital rooms. 
By the end of June, the Corps had added over 15,000 new hospital beds nationwide. One commitment that he keeps coming back to is no American should die because of a lack of hospital beds. And The New Yorker gives him credit for managing all of these projects while also staying out of politics, which is not an easy task in this environment. Right. And there's an anecdote in the article about Semonite being at a press conference with the president. And Trump wanted him to stay for questions. But Semonite simply said, sir, I've got a lot of building to do. I'm going to leave if you don't mind. A couple of weeks ago on this show, we talked about a schooling trend among wealthy families, what's becoming known as pandemic pods. It's the idea that as American schools continue with online learning or parents are nervous about exposing their children to many other students, moms and dads are forming small groups with other families, pooling their resources and hiring a tutor or teacher to supplement their children's education. Yet these pandemic pods can cost families thousands of dollars a month, and they're leading to concerns about furthering the gap in educational inequality in this country. The fear is that many children from low-income families will be left out of this emerging, personalized education model, and that they'll fall behind their more affluent peers. But it doesn't have to be that way. And The Wall Street Journal is out with a story about parents and educators in the San Francisco Bay Area who are working to find a solution that's equitable and inclusive. Now, they are trying to create pods that are available to all children, not just those who come from wealthy backgrounds. In one case, a mother of two is working with nonprofit groups to create pods that mix students in Palo Alto in California, which is a pretty wealthy suburb, and students in East Palo Alto, where the median income is much lower. She's hoping they can come up with a system where wealthier parents offset the tutoring costs for parents who can't afford to pay full price. One person The Wall Street Journal introduces us to is Yenda Prado. She's a community research fellow who works in education and is a low-income parent herself. Now, she's collaborating with the University of California at Irvine School of Education and nine public schools. What they're trying to do is match families interested in forming pods with undergraduate students who are also currently learning to become educators. And she says it'll be free or almost completely subsidized. Finally, Duarte, a story about nature and migration from NPR. I chose this one. It really spoke to me. And we all know that birds migrate, whales migrate, even humans migrate. Well, a new book suggests that forests might migrate, too. Every tree I see is always in the same place, Shemita. Are you saying that individual (laughs) trees move? Good point. Okay, let me tell you about the book. It's called The Journeys of Trees by Zach St. George. And he went through tons of research. He looked at centuries of data. And he says that slowly, over time, forests shift and shuffle inch by inch. I'm not saying like trees get up and start moving inch by inch, but the idea is that the trees in a forest give off seeds, right? And those seeds blow around, they land in all directions. But let's say the conditions to the north of the forest are just a little bit more ideal, a little bit more sun, a little bit more rain, and the seeds that land toward the north end of the forest end up thriving more. The trees on the south end of the forest might end up dying more. And over time, I'm talking long time, generations, the forest will slowly move toward the north. The author says that forests are, quote, restless things. You make me want to plant a tree. You can find all these stories and more in the Apple News app. 
And while you're there, check out some of this week's audio stories, including an audio excerpt from the new book, Cast, by Isabel Wilkerson. It's the latest book chosen for Oprah's book club. You can hear why Oprah calls it essential for this moment in a special intro that she recorded for this excerpt. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.